This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. I'm your host, Eric Jones. In this episode, I sit down with anthropologist Nam Kim and we discuss the underpinnings of ancient Vietnam. edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. As usual, I'm your host, uh, Eric Jones, and with me is uh, Dr. Nam Kim, Associate Professor of Anthropology at University of Wisconsin-Madison. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much, Eric. It's a privilege to be here. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate your uh, your uh, your talk and your research. Um, uh, Nam Kim is an anthropological archaeologist, um, and his work is wide-ranging, um, uh, your book, Origins of Ancient Vietnam, Oxford Press, 2015, is, a, is an important one. And you've got a forthcoming one, uh, Emergent Warfare in Our Evolutionary Past from, from Rutledge. So uh, we've got a lot to look forward to. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> so, so introduce us to, to, to early Vietnam through the archaeological record. Um, what are, why is it important? What do we know about yeah. uh, early Vietnam? Yeah. Um, well, I guess uh, we can start by asking the question of what we consider to be Vietnam. Yeah. Um, Vietnam itself, as, as all, most of us know, is something that is the outcome of hundreds or thousands of years of social change, political history, what we see today in terms of borders and geography. Um, that's much, rec- much more recent. So we start looking at the origins of, of Vietnamese civilization or identity. Um, we have to take into account that we're, we're looking at a smaller geographic space, and there are several sources of information that we can look at to, to answer those questions about it. And I think the idea you, you presented there, there, there may be Vietnams. There yes. are, there are, there are <clears throat> all of these strands, that some that persist, some that, some that passed on. Right, right. Um, and some, uh, we're looking at various ethnicities in modern-day Vietnam and different geographic areas. Uh, for many people, the origins would be up in the north. And this would be in the Red River Delta and Valley area. Um, and we have access to uh, textual accounts uh, that date to various time periods, um, maybe just a few centuries ago to much, much more, uh, much further into the past. And a lot of times we have to co- corroborate mo- many of these claims with archaeological materials. Historians and, and archaeologists look to Vietnam as an important cultural source and, and historical kind of early, early um, kind of signpost. The Dong Song culture is something that uh, we often talk about. Can you tell our listenership what, what is what is this Dong Song culture and why is it important for early early Asia, early Southeast Asia? Yeah. Oh, so the Dong Song culture is, um, is, is essentially it connects various sites and settlements. Um, dotting the Red River Valley area of northern Vietnam. Today, we can point to potentially over 100 different sites that bear Dong Son culture materials. Uh, many of these are actually graves and burial sites. Uh, but we have an idea about some of the life ways that people practiced. We are looking at uh, the Iron Age, about uh, 600 B.C. to the first couple of centuries of the Common Era. 
in this part of the world. And wet rice production is predominant. We have farming villages, uh, and the Dongsan are renowned for their bronzes, their bronze production. We have a very sophisticated bronze working industry uh, for many of these communities. And <clears throat> so there, there, there are famous drums, of course, or are the are the that's right. are, are much fabled. Um, how do we, if if it's, if we notice that a society does sophisticated bronze like that, what can, what can we kind of project, and what what does that tell us about yeah. the, uh, the state that must have supported that? Yeah. Um, well, at the very least, we can point to um, craft production at a very high level. And it might be organized in some ways. We have innovations. Not everyone's going to have access to these materials, the raw materials, to produce these bronzes. And not everyone's right. going to have access to the technologies and the, the technical know-how to produce these products. Um, and what might be interesting is how, how restricted it might be in some sense, but also how pervasive it is. Because these bronzes, in particular the bronze drums that many people know about, are located not just in northern Vietnam, but also in parts of, of southern and southwestern China, up in the Yunnan Plateau area, um, as well as other parts of mainland and insular Southeast Asia. So these, these materials are circulating, and it, it I think, depicts a, a growing um, interregional trade network that's, that's emerging, uh, maybe some of the earliest instances of globalization that we see in this part of the world. Hmm. Uh, but at the same time, it tells you a little bit about the kinds of societies um, that are participating, that are producing, exchanging, and using this ma- these materials for various reasons, whether they're cultural, ceremonial, uh, political, or economic. In, in and they're nature. and they're dispersed quite widely, right? All through, like, where's the furthest reach? Clear from Borneo to yeah, uh, parts of island Southeast Asia. I mean, there, there are there are some examples, and some of them may date to later periods. Um, and of course, we we can ask if if they will have the same function depending mm. on the time and place. Yeah. Um, but uh, one of the, the interesting questions that we can also think about is the origins. And people ask about this. What is the earliest example of these drums, and where did they originate? And this speaks to larger issues about national identity. Um, so for some researchers, the <laughs> right. Dong Sun would be the <laughs> earliest examples for these bronze drums, but there are those that, that discuss some of the specimens found in the Yunnan Plateau, for instance, and how those drums... Uh, and their manufacturing efforts predate the Dong Sun. And a lot of this actually was written up in, a, in an article in Asian Perspectives uh, by uh, researcher Xiaorang Han, I believe, um, several years ago, talking about the origins of the drum and how this plays into nationalistic types of perspectives. Um, some people refuse to see uh. the other side. Uh, some are open to the data, and some have a different way of interpreting the, the data sets. Right, because these are these are prestige objects that um, that I imagine it would be it would be easy for uh, uh, an ambitious nationalist the same way that um, you know Indian nationalists looked at the uh, Indic culture that spread through Southeast Asia and say, look, we are you know mm-hmm. our our culture we we were colonizers ourselves you right. know whether or not that's true is another story right, but right. but but it's 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 a quick leap that the, of of kind of pride and paramountcy that you can see being made uh, did do do how do the vietnamese talk about it in their textbooks the dong song culture um well you know a, a few decades ago uh, when the institute of archaeology began um there was a there was a, a a mission essentially to support historical narratives 
to find the material correlates to help Where, wherever they led or with a, with a focus in mind. Um, well, w- with the textual accounts in mind. So okay. we, we have an idea of what mm. those narratives say, those national meta narratives about the, the, the Hung Kings, for instance. Right. Let's find stuff on the trunk, sister. Let's, let's figure out. That's right. Okay. So, so, so pinning, um, evidence and, and, mm-hmm. uh, to, to these, to these mythical stories or these, right. is that, is that what yeah. we're so talking about? So we're talking about mythical or legendary accounts, or we're talking about textual accounts that come to us from the first millennium or the second millennium, um, the efforts in the 60s and 70s were very focused on finding the archaeological correlates, the archaeological side to those stories, so that we could say we not only know about these uh, polities and these kingdoms from history, but now we've found their locations. We found proof, material proof, that they existed. So that was one of the important objectives. Hmm. Uh, so when you look at it from that standpoint, the Dongsan culture and its sophistication, its evidence of... Um, rice production, for instance, and uh, its wide-ranging reach uh, in terms of exchange and cultural influence, that would be very prominently featured in the national imagination. This is indigenous. This, this predates yeah. the time period when the Han annexed this part of, of the world, when they come into the Red River Delta area, and the Chinese effectively would stay for about a 1,000 years or so. So the Vietnamese of, of later eras would often point to the archaeological record of a, an indigenous and local development of, of societies and civilization and how that might correspond to these historical narratives. So it's a powerful base with different p- pillars, essentially. And, and that ties into uh, uh, a bit of the research that you were doing with collaborative partners in, in Vietnam, um, excavating. Tell us about um, some of your uh, of Gola and some of the uh, new, new insights coming out of your work and, yeah. and others. Yeah, so the, uh, uh, the, the site known as Tengkolua is located right outside of Hanoi. And this is a settlement that's associated with mythical and legendary accounts and, uh, having to do with uh, an individual by the name of An Zung Bung, also known as Tukfan. And he was the purported founder of what's known as the Olak Kingdom or dynasty. He comes into power, overthrowing the last of the Hung kings, also uh, known in, in v- Vietnamese traditions, and it, he uses Skolua as his capital. He builds the city. He builds the massive fortifications that we still see standing today. The and, 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 that, and that's substantiated. That's not just that. That's we, that, we have a pretty good idea that that's the case. We. <laughs> this is where we uh, run into challenges and opportunities for, for research. Um, many people in Vietnam accept the history about An Zung Bung as fact. They look at the site okay. and the remnants of the site and say, okay, that's proof. That there's your evidence there. There's the yeah. evidence. It's yeah. standing right there. Uh, for me, I'm a bit un- uncomfortable with taking it that far. Um, our research at the site of Golwa, and this is collaborative work that I've been doing with, with my Vietnamese colleagues at the Institute of Archaeology and others in Vietnam, um, we've been ex- excavating at Golwa, trying to find not just material evidence to support or substantiate these various claims, but to uh, widen our perspective about lifeways during that period in time. What led to the emergence Mm -hmm. of this very important city? Whether we believe these stories or not, um, the evidence is clear that something very complex did exist here. And we wanted to know what were the conditions under which that occurred and what does it date to? Um, In the ensuing years, we excavated several parts of the Rampart system and found material evidence supporting the construction of the site as a city, the monumental aspects of it, 
Um, how, how for our listeners, how, how big of a, of oh, a right. city are we talking about? The city, um, incl- there are a series of three earthen enclosures that still remain today. The outermost enclosure uh, is about eight kilometers around in the circumference and encloses about 450 to 500 hectares of, of real estate. The entire site itself mm. that people often talk about is about 600 hectares, which is about six square miles. And that, that's, so that's one not of, a small... Yeah. No, no, it's uh, maybe a thousand football fields in terms of size. Now, we don't know how densely populated it might have been. Um, we're lacking some of the, the finer details in terms of settlement data to be able to tease that out. But we know that the monumental walls themselves were constructed at a certain point in time, you know, within a window of time. Right. And that would be around 300 to 100 BC. Now, that's significant because it predates the ascribed annexation of this region by the Han. So for some people that debated this, the origin stories about Gaulois, um, and some have argued that perhaps this is a, a Chinese construction. It's only after the Han come in and bring mm-hmm. civilization with them that we see right. these elements uh, emerging. Um, now the evidence is telling us uh, there's plenty that's happening here before the Han arrived, and perhaps the Han viewed this area as a prize of some kind because of its development. And and that's important, obviously, for just getting the record straight. But also, there's a there's a, a common narrative of, of course, of Vietnam being the passive recipient of 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 external history, of external right. forces. Whether it's the you know the I can think of like Keith Taylor's Birth of Vietnam, you know, the, 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 or a, a common. Um, Kind of Vietnam War era narrative about like well you know these the, we shouldn't be at war because their entire history is defined by resisting yeah. a- outsiders and also I you know, I think nationalists Vietnamese participated in like you know we are we are we are we have a long proud um, tradition of, of of that as well yeah. but I guess the 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 ex- extreme the, the danger of that is can it can, it can enforce a kind of a notion that it only exists when outside forces are a- right, acting on it. Right, right, as a sort of passive recipient of, yeah. of external forces. I think that's a dominant trope that, that has been within the literature um, in academic circles for, for quite some time. And, it, and as you point out, the Vietnamese participate in this sort of perspective as well. And that participation likely extends back centuries. Um, mm. There's a very complicated relationship between emerging Vietnamese civilization and Chinese civilization going back uh, for, for several generations. But um, what I think is also important to point out, and, and many of our uh, researchers do this, is we have to complicate our understanding about the internal trajectories, the internal forces within an emerging Vietnam. Um, they're not just passive recipients of outside influence. They are actively engaging in interaction, and they are also appropriating and sending back practices and ideas and materials. Um, the drums show a very good example of that. Um, if they're being mass-produced within this region and then they're being sent out to different parts of Southeast Asia, it shows that there's this burgeoning network of, of connectivity uh, for many of these communities where ideas are going back and forth, and it's not a one-way street. And we can argue the same thing is happening right across the border to the north as well. And it sounds like some some evidence the archaeology can tee up some evidence for those looking for the kind of the you know this important field question of our the of an autonomous history can can does southeast asia have one and and what what can we know about it Mm -hmm. uh it sounds like um 
archaeology has really something to say to speak to that um, that uh, the that autonomous history question. Am I overstating it? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I think uh, you know it, it depends on your your focus and sort of the level of, of analysis. Right? We can we can look at um, a, a particular village, for instance, a site and look at how it might be fairly isolated or autonomous, but at the same time, when you start looking at all the materials that are coming in and out of that site, uh, you start to realize it's placed in a larger context. And the same thing can be said about a site like Gaulois. Um, It's situated in this northern part of Vietnam, and for for the most part, you can talk about these autonomous uh, trajectories of change, these sort of isolated, um, where we have various communities related to the Dong Son culture during that time period, becoming part of this larger state-like entity. Um, but at the same time, this does not happen in a vacuum. And uh, almost assuredly, events happening to the north, to the west, and to the south are affecting what's happening here as well. Uh, I think during the talk, we, we also mentioned the Warring States period. Um, we're In the 3rd century BC, we're at the tail end of the Warring States period in, in the central plains of China. And it's just before the Qin consolidate uh, its power as an imperial power, and its imperial history of China begins. Um, but I, I'm, I'm guessing that we have people that are moving about because of all the flux and turmoil that's occurring in the north. And it's quite possible that that's having an impact on what's yeah. happening here as well. What are some other insights that you think that uh, Golau or the other um, the other site research can tell us about uh, early state formation mm. in in Southeast Asia? I mean, maybe some preliminary conclusions, but what are your, what are your thoughts? Yeah, um, what well, I think there, we're, we're looking at a number of factors um, that could be considered uh, proximate or long term variables or causes for state formation. But one of the, the, the important ones that I'd like to point out is the, the role of militarism and violence, um, the use of force, or at least the threat of the use of force, plays a very important role for people to be able to consolidate authority and power. Uh, I, I'm under the, the impression um, from, from all of the research that I've done that normally people, groups of people do not cede their autonomy, their political autonomy, <laughs> not willingly. Uh, there has to be some kind of compelling reason. Now, sometimes you can point to uh, common beliefs, you can point to ideology, religion, some kind of other social factor. But when we think about power being durable and being maintained uh-huh. for an extended period of time, oftentimes you're, you're going to need some kind of physical force to back up that kind of consolidation of power. Are, are you uh, Obviously, a, a, a discourse that exists is about about warfare and violence in Southeast Asia that is that it's that, that argues that it's different that it doesn't um, uh, that uh, you know capturing uh, one's enemy is is as important as 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 mm. defeating it and, and sure. destroying it and kind of a uh, uh, do you think uh, is that incorrect is that are those later situations I mean is that is are you I guess what you're seeing is that um, what you can know from your evidence is that that violence seemed to be a, a decent part of the yeah. of the way the state operated. Yeah. So 
to to answer that question for the Kolwa case specifically is difficult because we do not have enough data to know the specific cultural context under which violence might be occurring. Okay. Um, are people raiding for for territory? Are they raiding for resources? Are they raiding to capture people uh, for labor? That's not completely known, I don't think. You, you showed you showed some pictures at least. You found some military evidence. What are some of the things you found? At, uh, was it was it uh, crossbow? We have um, we have crossbow technology yeah. um, related to that part of the world. We have uh, from the Koloa site and from other surrounding areas um, plenty of evidence for the manufacture of bronze bolts, mm. um, the points for crossbow bolts, as well as trigger mechanisms. We have iconography on. Is that sort of what survives as as the as the wood of the crossbow? Yes. Do, yes. Okay. So certain elements of these artifacts will not preserved very well in, under certain conditions, but other elements do survive. And we have we have implements, we have daggers that are associated with the Dongsun culture, um, weapons that are diagnostically identified for use uh, in, in violence or people upon people, not hunting implements, not farming tools, but very right. clearly violent uh, weapons of, of violence. Um, and we also have depictions on the, some of these bronzes with, associated with the Dongsun culture showing what appear to be warriors, in some cases with captives, um, on some of their, uh, their boats and other kinds of, of depictions. Um, these may be raiding activities of some kind. It's unclear. Uh, but I think the point that you made just earlier uh, about the, the, the way of warfare and how in some parts of Southeast Asia it might be to capture people, I think it depends on the context, right? If, if right. we're looking at um, areas that may not be quite as densely populated, the objective is not necessarily to capture real estate, but you need people, you need people power and you need followers or supporters. And so it really depends on the cultural context. Um, but for, for, for me, the larger issue of whether or not violence is important, it relates to various applications, right? It doesn't matter exactly what the specific objectives might be. And those objectives might change over time. I was, I was going to ask you what you're, um, what are you working on in the future, and and you know you obviously that your violent stuff is a segue to your maybe to your, but um, you could maybe speak about or, or if there's plugs that you want to do um, for if you know for 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 anything for yeah. um, um, you know like the um, one of our visitors was taking students to Encore and said you know go visit my <laughs> so <laughs> I think if there, are, there are, if there are things or programs you want to plug yeah. um, do that but uh, yeah. from your anything else from your research that um, that uh, that we want to we want to take a stab at that um, takeaway points that I think yeah that so I guess if we segue from that question about violence it for me personally that that was one of the main reasons I got into uh, research in academia in the first place was not not necessarily about Vietnam and, and Southeast Asia but I was interested in why people fight in general and that's what hmm. led me into anthropology looking at some of the cultural reasons. Um, and eventually into archaeology, because uh, as, as my late advisor, Larry Keeley, who, who only recently passed away, um, he gave me a terrific sales pitch when I was just thinking about grad school. 
Um, if you really want to understand how a phenomenon or behavioral pattern, behavioral pattern like, like warfare, for instance, begins, you have to start with the material record. You have to trace it back as far as you can and, just, and not just rely on the historical evidence for warfare, um, but to look at right. the archaeological record. So some of our listeners might be asking themselves, uh, so, you know, in, in, in a European context, we can look in, at, at skeletal remains and see kind of evidence of, uh, you know, of broadsword or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the traces of violence are literally, um, what are some of the challenges in, in Southeast Asia? Um, preservation of, of materials. Um, so the conditions, depending on where you are in the time period, you might not get skeletal material that would survive in the archaeological record. Uh, so those would be some of the easiest ways for direct indication of violence, um, depression, fractures, peri marks mm-hmm. on your forearms and, and so forth. So you have to use various pieces or strands of evidence and put them together into a larger context. It's sort of like a trial lawyer building a case. Right. right. And the more you can put together, the more you can show absence or presence of violence. But then you also have to go beyond that and show the larger cultural context. Why? Why this time? Why this place? Why not elsewhere? What else are we potentially missing? Um, So those would be some of the challenges in Southeast Asia. Uh, Having said that, um, I find that for the prehistoric period, not that many people are asking that question, how significant or how pervasive violence might have been. We can see it in the historic period or the common era. For example, the spectacular depictions on the, the walls at Angkor Wat, for instance, showing mm-hmm. uh, some of these uh, w- uh, war, war-like uh, occurrences, people riding on elephants, uh, wars on boats, for instance, or battles being fought on top of boats between uh, the, the, the Khmer and, and the Cham, for instance. But once we start getting to the prehistory, not many people have been looking at that question. I think partly because they... Yeah, I was just going to ask, why, why is that? Uh, For me, I think it it has to do with um, either not knowing exactly what the methodological uh, processes might be or having a framework for identifying warfare or not being interested. But I think the former, um, it's only within the last couple of decades that most archaeologists, at least in the West, have been asking more questions about prehistoric warfare. And prior to that, there has been a tension or a debate within anthropology about how has, has far inter, back inter, it goes. interdisciplinarity helped um, the, 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 as archaeologists read other literature. I mean, how, how do you think that, uh, or or is it contemporary events that that uh, you know, like forensic anthropology or whatever that, right. that what pushes that? I think it's a, it's a mix. Um, I think we are a product of our times. Um, after World War II, for instance. Uh, I think there was a concerted effort to start thinking about our past as being not quite as bloody and violent as as the time period we're living in. So maybe when we didn't live in a a state, in a world full of nation states that were bent on securing their borders and promoting their interests and using conflict and force to do so, that perhaps there was an idyllic time, a more Rousseauian perspective. That might have colored some of our perspectives about the the deeper past. but in, in, in the later decades of the 20th century, more and more archaeologists started to ask the question, what does the record actually show us? We can see elements of conflict within ethnographic studies of smaller-scale societies, but what does the archaeological record tell us? And once people started to figure out methods and what the diagnostic signatures might look like, more and more people started to do so in different parts yeah. of the world. And that has been changing how we view uh, many of these archaeological records. It, it, I think Southeast Asia has lagged behind in, in that regard. But what I'm hoping is that some of the work that we do now 
will not only influence the way we look at that past, but also where we look for evidence. I'm not arguing that the past is full of blood and violence, but what I'm arguing is that we can't ignore the possibility that it was a significant part of the of the humanity's past, um, and one one that might depict forms of cooperation. Because for me, warfare, it's an ugly behavior, but at the same time, it is a form of cooperation, at least for the groups that are participating within it. And it's something that I think we've been capable of for a very long time. Well, uh, thanks, Nam, so much for our, for our listeners. Tell, give them a sense of what... Uh, what do you got coming up? What is your uh, you have you have this forthcoming book from Rutledge yes. uh, on 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 violence, right? Yes. And, um, yes. Um, other uh, more excavations in the future. Um, plenty more, hopefully. <laughs> um, so the the book is coming out. Uh, it should be released next spring, I believe. I, this, I'm co-authoring this with uh, Mark Kissel, one of my colleagues, and this is a book that we wish we had when we started asking these questions about how far back war goes within our species, um, and that has to do with uh, all the evidence that anthropologists can can marshal, yeah. essentially, in trying to piece together the the, in the history of warfare in our Interesting. species. Um, and in terms of my work in Vietnam, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm fairly certain I'm going to spend your the rest cooperation of my- again with the, with the Vietnamese scholars and and government seem that seems seems significant, right? It, I've been very lucky, very fortunate. Um, I, I was the first foreigner allowed to excavate. At Golois. I know that others had asked, but not been given permission. Um, I have a feeling that my heritage, my ancestry, had a role to play in that. Uh, having uh, Vietnamese ancestry, my mother is Vietnamese. Uh, I was born in Saigon, although we left when I was very young. Um, but being able to under, understand yeah. the language and the culture, um, I think they were much more comfortable agreeing to collaborate with, with me as opposed to someone from a different background. Um, and some of the questions I was asking, they were interested in, in as well. This was back in 2005 when I first went to, to, to explore the possibility. But they, they did a, let me know that they were in need of resources. So if I were able yeah. to raise funding for these, these collaborative projects, they were on board for that. And uh, the, the relationship has taken off from there. Uh, I have a feeling that um, we can be collaborating and there's plenty of work to be done at Goa probably for the rest of my career. Well, it seems like there's where, I mean, it's time for, um, you know, a new post-colonial model of not just a sort of extractive kind of research only, but, right. but, but, but where we participate with, um, with our research sites and yeah. with our friends and partners, uh, to, to have this collaborative research because, um, I think it's, it's, it's better in the, you know, they have their ownership in, in their own story seems like yeah. a huge part of it. Yeah, well, I think that's absolutely vital. I think if we think about Gaulois as a, as a case study, there are multiple, yeah. multiple stakeholders, uh, ranging from government officials all the way down to the people living in the commune at Gaulois. And everybody has some... And up sta- to UNESCO, maybe. Up to UNESCO, yeah. yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, they're they're up actively trying to obtain World Heritage Site status for Gaulois. And it would have an impact. Um, what we find how we interpret the evidence, how we present it, um, and how that gets disseminated to the, the, the larger context of, of, on the global stage can all have an impact on daily life within Vietnam for people living at Goa and how that past gets preserved and, and what 
in what ways people use that information to educate people moving forward. All of that can have an impact. So I think it's it, when we look at the situation, um, there are multiple stakeholders and there's going to be significance for a lot of people. Well, again, um, Kim, we appreciate your work and your research and thanks for joining us. Thank you. It was a privilege to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.